Hey all, welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host Bushido Squirrel, and today we're doing the California primary election. So this is going to be our first like wrap up, sort of like big overview episode as far as elections go, uh, because I've only been doing this since like December. So we haven't really had any any elections except for a small special election. This is a, a really interesting episode. We got Ace Katana coming on. We have uh, Rich King, and we got Chris Roth. We're going to be discussing the election. We're going to be running through the results that we kind of care about and that we think are going to be interesting and important. Uh, uh, remember, we're going to get to do this all over in November. Uh, Knock and Ground Game will be doing a more comprehensive voting guide, or rather endorsements and kind of voting guide. We got off the blocks a little bit late on this one, uh, but this is all a learning process. Everything's in process, and we're kind of learning as we go and figuring out what exactly we want to do and what we want to say and how we want to approach these issues. So we're going to go ahead and roll into this, and it was a really weird election. We'll go ahead and start with an overview about like voter turnout and all that stuff, because, spoiler alert, no one voted in this election. That's really bad. But before we do that, I want to big, give a big shout out to Ben Hawk from Revolution LA. He did a bunch of research on the races, which uh, we cribbed off of uh, with his with his consent. Uh, Revolution LA has really been out there killing it. They're working on the divestment movement, and they were also organizers behind the Bernie event last Saturday. So if you get the chance, check them out online at revolutionla.org. Again, it's revolutionla.org. So to start breaking down the election, uh, overall, 21.8% of registered voters in California showed up Tuesday. They cast more than 4.1 million ballots. So this is a little bit less than half of the 2016 presidential election turnout and just slightly lower than the last gubernatorial election in 2014, which saw about 24% of the California electorate turnout. Now, Los Angeles County, as of this recording, is a lot lower on the list uh, and only saw 18% voter turnout with 950,000 votes cast. However, more than 100,000 voters were left off the rolls in LA County, a mistake which caused delays and headaches for voters at several precincts, and something we'll talk about a little bit later uh, when we get into the race for Secretary of State. Now, to sort of sum this up in a graph, there were no major upsets on a statewide level. Incumbents tended to get the nod to go through to November, and outside of a few very close races for the number two spot, things were pretty much in line with expectations. So we're going to go ahead and roll into this and see, you know, what indications are that the Democratic hopes for a wave election in November could still come to fruition. Progressive challenges in this primary were largely blunted, though they did make some respectable showings. So with all that in mind, let's work our way down the ballot. Now, we're not going to hit every race statewide. Instead, we're going to cover the big races and, a, and selected races down ballot that either caught our attention or po point to larger trends that we can see. So let's go ahead and start off with the Senate. What's going on with the Senate, Chris? Well, uh, it's no surprise to much of anyone um, that Dianne Feinstein was the number one pick on the ballot. Uh, she will be coasting through to November, and the real race was trying to figure out who was going to be number two. Ultimately, it turned out to be Kevin DeLeon, who bested Republican James Bradley to make it onto the ballot in November. DeLeon will have to make up a 33-point deficit before that, but he's definitely a credible threat to replace Feinstein. Progressive Allison Hartson pulled in 2% of the vote, while Pat Harris was about 4,000 votes behind her. The field was crowded with Republicans who picked up support outside of the coastal cities. A Democrat will definitely be going to Washington, but now the question is, will that candidate win because they turned out the Democratic base or because they were able to pull in more progressive support? While De Leon is seen as challenging Feinstein from the left, both candidates have strong connections to the political establishment and the Democratic Party. 
All right, so Kevin DeLeon, uh, state senator, is going to be carrying on to fight against Feinstein in November, and Rich King is here to talk a little bit about how his performance was lackluster. So what are your thoughts on this, Rich? Well, um, he is, full disclosure, he is my state senator, which uh, is it makes anyone proud, obviously. Huh. Um, but, uh, no, he, uh, first and foremost, he didn't even win his home district, the the. The counties where he represents was elected to the state Senate. Didn't win those. Lost by like 20,000 votes. And I believe there were something like 60,000 votes cast. So it's not, that's not, uh, that's not a good margin for him. And, and he's not super popular, I take it, amongst like the constituents out there. I, I just, I don't, I don't think so. I think people that pay attention sort of, um, be, I'll speak for myself. I, I hold it against him that uh, he pushed out the uh, SB uh, 562, the single-payer legislation, which really wasn't ready to move on to the Assembly, but I feel like he pushed it out as a part of gaining political capital with people on the left saying, like, oh, no, I'm for single-payer, knowing that it wasn't going to be able to pass in the Assembly because of how just stripped down it was and had no funding mechanism and really just wasn't ready to to become law. Yeah, there were some pretty valid concerns also about, like, pay rates and how they're going to, like, not screw over doctors in California because running a medical practice is expensive, and it also it just sort of set up Rendon to, to table it indefinitely and dash a lot of hopes. Um, and it seems like that's part of De Leon's strategy. Like, he wants to play like he's on the left, but he's much more down the center. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, if if I'm calculating the way that he's calculating, I think he entered this race to um, give him statewide recognition because he has not run for statewide office yet. This is his first time doing it. So now I think he intends to lose this race, which he probably will. I mean, the total votes cast against Feinstein weren't even more than the total votes cast that she received. Yeah, it's a that's a big like hurdle to, to overcome. And he has some statewide recognition from being president of the Senate, but I don't think that carries very far. Do you think he wants to make like another Senate run? Or do you think he's looking for like, he's definitely looking to level up. And I guess like putting on your hypotheticals hat, where do you think he's trying to level up to? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I would say statewide for sure. Um, but I... I think that he probably is not going to be able to run for the Senate against Kamala Harris. Um, I just don't see that happening. And, you know, I think in another six years, it probably looks like Javier Becerra is going to make a run for Feinstein's seat. So probably, I, I mean, I would have to I would have to guess like uh, lieutenant governor, maybe, because I don't see him being like making an actual ploy for governor either. So I think he still needs to win a statewide race um, if he wants to be governor, which I don't even know if he wants to do that, but like he definitely needs to win a statewide race to be able to raise his political capital enough to be able to be a viable candidate in any of these statewide races. All right. And this is a little like baby step towards that, but I fully expect him to lose um, handedly. <laughs> I, well, I'll, I'll check in. We'll see if he wins yeah. his, uh, his home district in November or not. Yeah, but as, as far as political calculations go, it makes sense that he's going to see more name recognition. He'll probably pull in a bunch more money. He'll probably open up a whole bunch more consulting and lobbying gigs like there's either win or lose he's going to benefit from this and that sort of bothers me about that yeah yeah i, I and i think that's correct this is sort of a win-win for him because he turned out of the senate so can't run for that seat anymore um and if he were to try to make a play for the assembly that would be viewed as a step down so you know i think that this was an, an opportunity for him just based on the calendar of how his career in politics lined up mm -hmm. with a, an, an open seat or not an open seat but a yeah 
a, a competition to come up. So we'll, we'll have to see. I, I, I don't think that he's done with politics by any measure. Um, I think that we'll see him on a statewide ballot probably in the next like four years, I guess. And it'll be interesting to see him in a race where he's not sort of the begrudgingly accepted number two, where people want to vote more progressive, but they also want a credible challenger. And I know that sapped a lot of votes from like Alison Hartson and Dave Hildebrand and a lot of the people down ballot. Uh, at the same time, it makes sense because you didn't want Bradley going up against Feinstein because Bradley doesn't need more money or power. Um, and you also kind of want to try and force Feinstein a little bit more to the center-ish. I'd say to the left, but she's already so far to the right that, like, <laughs> you got to pass through the center first. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know that that's even realistically going to happen. You know, Alison Hartson ran some good ads against her, and um, there was a notable move that she made based on those attack ads that were yeah. run because, you know, she she's not for um, legalized marijuana. So, mm -hmm. like, we have cannabis legalized in this state. And she's not even for it. Like, yeah. And so it's that that doesn't compute. And then Allison Hartson hit her on um, hit her on that pretty hard. So yeah. Then she came down. She's like, maybe it's something that I might consider at some point. So, you know, sort of like dipping her toe toward the left, which I think we can both agree is still far to the right of center. Yeah. And it's it, it's she it, like Diane Feinstein hasn't survived this long by not being good at politics. Uh, and I think we're going to see that come out. And I feel like De Leon is going to just get outmaneuvered. And I'm kind of like there's part of me that's like schadenfreude. Like it'll be fun to watch that happen. But another part of me that feels bad because I don't really want Feinstein to go back to the Senate. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, like De Leon can't he doesn't even really have a, a good case to attack her if he wants to remain uh, legitimate with the, the political elites statewide yeah. within the state. So, you know, she's still viewed. I mean, she's a 24 year incumbent. Like she's viewed as probably untouchable, I guess. Yeah. But like if he goes super hard against her, well, then he's going to be shunned by the party. And that's not going to do good for him if he wants to hold elected office sometime in the future. Yeah. And a uh, last question on this subject. Uh, what do you think uh, 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 DeLeon's strategy is going to be? Like, you were one of his constituents. You saw him run a couple of races. Like, how do you think he's going to try and play this? That's a, that is a good question. Um, time will tell. But I, my, my guess is that he's going to try to find a couple of points. I think he'll probably speak a lot about 562 and that he was you know, successfully pushed it out of the Senate. And everyone will know that, like, well, that was sort of, you know, he kind of shot that bill in the foot. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think that's one thing that he'll run on. Um, beyond that, I think he's probably going to, you know, he's he's got a great story. You know, he's a, a immigrant um, child of an immigrant parents. And, yeah. Um, I think he'll probably play to the Latino base. And that's, you know, that's fine. If he wants to do that. I don't think it's going to do good for him, um, just generally speaking. But, yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of posturing, a lot of like, you know, these are the things that we can be doing and probably, probably probably talk about Trump a lot, actually, if I had to guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not looking forward to this race myself. No, it's not going to be a good one. <laughs> uh, you know, we here at Knock kind of unofficially endorsed Allison Hartson, and she made a pretty decent run at it. I, I have a lot of hope for progressives, like, making runs at bigger office, uh, but this year it doesn't look like they were going to have enough to crest it. And we saw that again in the governor's race. So Gavin Newsom takes the top spot. He's the lieutenant governor at the moment. He's followed by wealthy businessman John Cox. Now, Cox has gotten support from Trump, and many commentators felt that Newsom's campaign took a negative tone towards Villaraigosa towards the end to bring about just this result. Uh, as California is a heavily Democratic state, Newsom's campaign seems to believe that they will have a better chance against Cox and can rely on a strategy that courts voters in dense, left-leaning cities. Now, you can see if you look at the maps... Cox did really bad in the cities, but really well in the outlying areas and, like, the really rich suburbs. So that might be a little 
point that we'd want to consider seeing as we just saw that strategy blow up in Hillary Clinton's face about two years ago. Uh, now, Delane Easton uh, was running farthest out in the left uh, as far as credible candidates go. She ended up pulling in about 3% of the vote, coming in fourth among the Democrats, but proving that insurgent progressive candidates are gaining a statewide reach. Uh, let's go on to the lieutenant governor race, one that isn't generally exciting, but is getting more exciting this year. Now, when it comes to the lieutenant governor race, Democrats Eleni Kunalakis and Ed Hernandez will be facing off in November. Gail McLaughlin came in eighth with 4% of the vote, which is an incredible result for someone who's running without any major party support or affiliation and was touting endorsements from organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America. McLaughlin has a strong presence among organizers and activists, and I'd go out on a limb to say that her showing is largely due to her ability to marshal young, enthusiastic supporters to whip votes in their communities. So moving on to the Secretary of State endorsement. Now, I kind of teased this one uh, a little uh, beforehand, and I have to throw out a real quick caveat. Now, on our endorsement episode, I made the very controversial assertion that, quote, Alex Padilla seems fine. And boy, was I wrong. I now retract that statement. Uh, in an act of bureaucratic fumbling, a printing error left nearly 120,000 voters off the rolls in Los Angeles County. This led to long lines at dozen of polling stations, people probably walking away and not voting, and thousands of others were forced to stand in line to vote provisionally, meaning their ballots weren't immediately counted. So we're not anticipating that changing any of the races so far. It's probably not going to be that big of an impact. But it is a big inconvenience, and it's something that you would think, like, the world's leading democracy and the world's fifth largest economy would have under control. However, with all that in mind, Padilla won handily with 51% of the vote and will head to November to face Republican Mark Muser. That little snafu that left those nearly 120,000 voters off the rolls actually impacted 35% of the precincts in Los Angeles and is potentially one of the driving factors behind our abysmal turnout at just, what was it, just shy of 19% that they're currently yeah, counting? Yeah, 18 and change. Apparently, another thing that's going to be impacting that was that we were allowing same-day registration for the first time this year. So things might pick up and maybe we'll get above 22% of the statewide average turnout. But who knows at this point? The voting, the counting of votes is likely to continue for at least the rest of this week and probably into next week. Yeah. Uh, so what's been going on with the uh, the attorney general race? Well, Javier Becerra is going to be continuing on to November and facing Republican Stephen Bailey. At this point, Becerra has a comfortable lead. The remaining 30% of the vote is evenly split between the last two, a Democrat and a Republican. The race will definitely be shaping up to be a referendum on the Trump administration's immigration policies. Becerra has risen to national prominence defending California's sanctuary state law from Jeff Sessions and the Department of Justice. And uh, unfortunately, Jeff Sessions and the DOJ are joined by a couple of cities in OC, which are also suing to overturn that law. So this is definitely a statewide race that's becoming a national issue race. Uh, so on to insurance commissioner. Now, insurance commissioner is a fairly bureaucratic position, but with the uh, Affordable Care Act and other uh, health care uh, initiatives and like regulations in place. The insurance commissioner helps negotiate rates, keep all of the insurers in line. So it's an incredibly important position. And this race is worth mentioning because it, it really is a toss up at this point. Uh, former Republican commissioner Steve Poisner, who has a history as a venture capitalist and has done a lot of business around Silicon Valley and Silicon Beach, uh, is running as an independent this time around and is evenly matched by Democrat Ricardo Lara. Each one of them took home 41% of the vote. So this kind of state 
state-level race may be a bellwether for more pronounced anti-Trump sentiments, as both of the candidates seem like they're running against Trump, but sort of from different angles. And and Poisoner running as an independent seems kind of like a cynical ploy to get away from the Republican Party that isn't pulling super well this this year. Uh, but he has been a lifelong Republican, so that's something to remember when you go in and see the no party preference next to his name. Uh, but moving on to Superintendent of Public Education. So Tony Thurman took the number two spot. He struck out on a strong stance against charter schools and privatized education. Marshall Tuck took the number one spot, relying on his career in the charter school industry. Antonio Villaraigosa relied heavily on donations from the private education sector, but found that more of a liability. And as education labor issues continue to draw national attention, the race for California's top educator is going to be intense. Expect to see even more money in this contest leading up to November. Last year's LAUSD board member election set records with the amount of money spent on local seats. California's future educational plans will set national priorities and could either provide a safe base for the charter school movement or could be the first sign of a shifting tide in favor of public education. Uh, So now we're going to move on to ballot measures. California had five statewide ballot measures to vote on on Tuesday. Four of them sailed to passage. So we'll just kind of go down the list. Prop 68 authorizes $4 billion in bonds to be spent on conservation, renewable energy, and environmental initiatives. Prop 69 forces the state to spend Prop 1 money raised by the gas excise tax on roads and transportation. Prop 70 would have forced a two-thirds majority for spending any money raised from the California cap-and-trade system, but failed with 64% opposed. Prop 71 pushed back the effective date of ballot measures that are passed. Now those laws will not go into effect until all the votes are certified, usually about six weeks after the election. And Prop 72 exempts rain capture systems from reassessments for property taxes. Only 17% of those voting oppose this idea, and I'm really curious to find out who that 17% is, because that seems like a weird thing to vote against. And so uh, we're going to do a little bit more in-depth on Prop 71, which was the, the ballot measure that pushed back the effective date of state laws to not come into effect until all of the votes have been certified. Uh, Now, knock and ground game, we're a little of an outlier here because we're skeptical about this bill and felt it was a little bit too broad um, and had to, should have had some carve-outs for things that involve criminalization, but we wanted to get into this a little bit more. So, Rich, what are your thoughts on this? It's... Honestly, my my general opinion is if you have a... If you want to pass a law that isn't... um, you know, specific enough or doesn't have the carve outs like you mentioned, then you, you shouldn't, you, it shouldn't become law. And I mean, this is where I stood, um, measure H or measure S, sorry, so long ago, um, just like it seemed like a poorly worded bill and didn't seem like it was going to do the things that it was supposed to do. So that's why I was against that one. Similarly, against 71. It, it was like taking a two by four when you needed a scalpel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I, it just, I, I read the um, there was one person who was against it. I forget his name in the uh, in the legislative um, pamphlet. Yeah, he was just there was one assembly member when it when you get to the opposition, it's just some random assembly member. And I think he was a Republican. I think he was from the Central Valley. It wasn't a name that stuck out to me. Yeah. So I Googled him and there was uh, I mean, I'll, it's I'll call it a, a hit piece, but it really wasn't a hit piece. It was basically like, hey, here's this guy who wrote this opposition to this ballot measure because he vowed years ago that he would never let a constitutional ballot measure go unchallenged. So the only reason he wrote the opposition is because no one else was going to write it. Yeah. Uh, but like, I mean, he brought up a decent point in saying that, um, y- you know, it, the, the argument was that it, it could possibly potentially create a conflict with um, with current law if you've passed a new ballot measure that's going to change current law. But then the the uh, 
the vote is so close that you don't actually know whether or not that law needs to be changed. Uh, the example that was given was we had the uh, single-use plastic bag ban recently, and I don't think that was a particularly close uh, vote, but the the argument given was, well, what if all these companies had to spend all this money on getting all these new plastic bags, and then it turns out they didn't need to get them? And my reaction to that is, I don't care if a corporation has to spend more money because they think a law may have changed. You know, so it's it seems like it's just a, it's a way to have a law that's going to be pro-corporate in the end, and it's probably going to hurt individual people. Um, you know, for, for example, we have uh, Costa-Hawkins repeal hopefully on the ballot, and the, hopefully that gets passed. Okay, now we can't pass, not that we could um, get it through quickly enough, but now we can't even begin to talk about stricter rent control measures until 48 days after the election. when the Because the, the, the way it was written is the vote has to be certified by the Secretary of State, and then there's a five-day waiting period until it becomes law. The Secretary of State has 43 days to certify the vote. So one of the things is a lot of the people that were for the measure, I feel like misunderstood it to say, oh, instead of things going into effect the day after the vote, they're just going to go into effect five days later, which misses the whole point of like, no, the secretary of state has to certify the ballot first. And I mean, you know, the the ballot measures that we saw um, this election passed, you know, 75 to 25, like overwhelmingly, there was none of them were even close. Yeah. And, and I, that that tends to be how ballot measures in California go as long as I've been watching them, especially like tax measures, you know, with the 60 percent um, uh, bar that you have to pass to get like new taxes. Those are always either a blowout one way or the other. They're never like super close. And there's never enough like late mail in ballots to really affect that. Like just statistically speaking, that's kind of a silly argument. And what really caught me up was. You know, here in L.A., like, weed has basically been decriminalized for a while. Like, you kind of had to go out of your way to, like, get arrested for it or get a ticket for it. But at the same time, there's a lot of, like, rural parts of California where they were still hardcore enforcing that stuff. And it seems like giving those sheriffs and those police departments six more weeks to arrest as many people as they can who aren't going to go to jail but will necessarily or might not necessarily go to jail. But they're paying court fees. They're paying arrest fees. They're paying possibly probation fees. Like, that's the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars that those police departments are going to lose out on if they don't enforce those laws they suddenly have a chance they have like six weeks to get all that money and that was one thing that really bothered me is all the rhetoric around it was tax bills and corporate stuff which i understand taxes are complicated big part of corporate life but not the most important thing in my book when i vote yeah no i i agree with that totally and i you know i wouldn't be surprised to see some kind of uh a legal challenge to this ruling um or possibly a reversal of it i, I don't know how exactly that works but yeah. um i i'd I feel like people got duped on this one, and um, I hope that they realize that and try to correct it in the future. Yeah, it was a really kind of a not controversial choice for a lot of groups, even groups that like we're allied with, uh, which I found kind of weird because like when I point out objections, people are like, "Oh, I hadn't thought about that," and you're like, "That's that's actually a little bit scary, folks. That's that's a little bit scary." At the same time, I feel like. It's a low impact one, but it's one where we can hopefully open up the space to get people to think a little bit more critically about how these bills kind of stretch out and affect stuff, especially in a state as complicated as California. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of different things going on in this state. We have uh, massive, we're massive in agriculture, we're massive in tourism, we have a big entertainment, we have Silicon Valley. I mean, top to bottom, this state is about as diverse as the entire country. Um, So, you know, when you 
when you pass these sweeping measures, like yeah, it, it, it can be really tricky. And you can just trying to think about all the different ways in which it can affect every part of the economy and every you know individual from an undocumented person to an unhoused person to yeah. somebody who you know is doing quite well for themselves and living fat and large. Like, it's just trying to keep all that stuff in perspective um, while also just like you know looking out for your own interests and like hey me as a as a small guy here in like a giant giant state like what do I think is going to be best and you know try to take that uh, try to take that to heart and yeah think think more when you vote because elections have consequences uh, but there were also some local ballot measures in San Francisco we wanted to cover real quick so tell me about those Chris well so San Francisco successfully passed proposition F which provides anyone facing eviction with a free attorney this particular initiative came from the DSA chapter in San Francisco and marks a major win for housing rights supporters in November, voters will be deciding on repealing Costa-Hawkins to allow rent control in California, as well as two measures that aim to amend Prop 13. California's housing crisis has spurred several state-level bills, including SB 827, which we've covered at length in this podcast, as well as several grassroots efforts to alleviate pressures on renters and homeowners. While significant state resources have been brought to bear to provide shelter and services to the unhoused, much less action has been aimed at helping tenants. It seems as though community groups and local coalitions are stepping up to address this with some very bold propositions that could bring major changes to California's housing supply and policies. Also of note, Proposition H failed to pass in San Francisco with 60% of voters opposed. Prop H would have lowered the bar for police to use tasers and other non-lethal force. Opponents successfully pushed the notion that rather than restraining the use of force, this bill would make it more likely that police would use force against people who are not violently resisting. While tasers are called non-lethal, their use has resulted in dozens of deaths across the country, something that activists were quick to note when arguing against the bill. Proposition H was put forward by the San Francisco Police Officers Association in response to policies passed by the San Francisco Police Commission in March. All right, now we're going to hit some congressional races. So uh, we're just going to hit the notable ones here, uh, mainly because California's top two primary system had both parties worried that they might be shut out in November. Uh, while this largely didn't happen, there were some very interesting results that support the idea that a national trend is beginning to coalesce around the Democrats' effort to retake the House and to win back more seats in the Senate. While California is a blue state, it has some of the most pro-Trump Republicans in Congress. And the concern among the GOP is that their voters will use these races to voice their displeasure with the president by voting out Republican incumbents. Now, as Politico noted, quote, in all seven Republican-held House districts that went for Hillary Clinton in 2016 and that Democrats are targeting this year, a Democrat was running second as of early Wednesday, likely securing a spot on the November ballot. And that trend, as far as we can tell, is continuing to hold. So those are actually going to be some really exciting races. Solidly blue districts have been seeing less action. Some, some longtime incumbent Democrats were able to squeeze out competition from the left and set up what should be safe races for November against Republicans. There are no major upsets this cycle, but November is shaping up to be as unsettled as the presidential election. Though with low turnout, it may be more about which party can activate their base than who can successfully reach out to their extremes. So let's start with uh, District 12, which is Nancy Pelosi up in San Francisco. And she easily took the, the top spot with 69% of the vote. She'll face Republican Lisa Remmer, who garnered 10% of the vote. Activist Shahid Buttar came in third, and he earned Knox's endorsement, and he's somebody to keep an eye on. Now, Pelosi was the big money in the race, and that advantage will assuredly continue into the general. If Democrats 
Democrats do retake the House, Pelosi has been floated as a possible speaker. She previously served as Speaker of the House from 2007 to 2011. Over in District 17, progressive Ro Khanna easily secured the top spot and will likely win in November. As the incumbent, he enjoyed a big advantage in the primary and his GOP challenger has a lot of ground to make up in a solidly blue district. Now, District 25 is one of those districts that Politico was talking about. Steve Knight, the incumbent, is seen as vulnerable in November. Knight is a strong Trump supporter, but his district went for Clinton in 2016. While he captured 53% of the vote this time around, he was fending off two strong Democrats. Ultimately, Katie Hill prevailed over Brian Caforio to continue through to November. Caforio had faced Knight before and failed to unseat him, so this time around, voters went with a more insurgent choice. With 48% of the district leaning Democratic in the primary, Knight's lead only amounts to about 5%, a fairly narrow margin that makes the seat flippable. Now, aside from Caforio, Hill was able to hold off other progressive challengers like Jess Phoenix, but there was a lot of good progressive and leftist energy in this race, and it's good to see that developing, even in places that don't seem like they're bastions of liberalism, quote-unquote, like out in Lancaster and the Antelope Valley and the High Desert. So hopefully we're beginning to see the sort of urban idea of more connected communities with more liberal social policy beginning to push out from the, the constraints of just L.A. as the city. Over in the solidly blue 29th district, Tony Cardenas came out on top on Tuesday with 67% of the vote. Benny Bernal, a Republican, will complete the matchup, and Green challenger Angelica Duenas was able to place fourth with 6% of the vote. Now in the 30th district, uh, Brad Sherman comfortably won the race to represent the East Valley. He took home 61% of the vote, and as the incumbent, that's not totally unexpected. Uh, And he was followed by Republican Mark Reed, who garnered 29% of the vote. And then Berniecrat John Peltzer, who you, you might remember we interviewed on this program, and is a really good, strong, committed progressive. He, he ended up earning 5% of the vote in his freshman campaign. Not sure if he's going to be running again, but that's a pretty good showing for somebody who has literally zero political career before this. Now, Sherman may be more vulnerable than this race suggests. His office came into the spotlight earlier this year when revelations against former aide Matt DeBobna surfaced, and other former staff gave interviews about Sherman's toxic office culture. The 30th is fairly solidly blue, but the geo will definitely be aiming to peel off voters there. And over in the 34th district, which is where I happen to live, Jimmy Gomez dominated this race, taking home 79% of the vote. However, Green Party's Kenneth Mejia garnered 12% of the vote and will be bringing in the number two slot coming in November. While he's got a huge deficit to make up, Mejia has proven himself a motivated campaigner, and I'll be watching to see how this campaign adapts to the money advantage that Gomez brings. Now in the 48th district, uh, Dana Rohrbacher is another vulnerable Republican who is facing very credible Democratic challengers. Rohrbacher secured 30% of the vote. The top two Dems each earned about 18% of the vote, with Harley Ruda winning with with a 73-vote advantage. So remember, folks, every vote effing counts. Uh, If that support level holds through to November, Ruta will be in a good position to further upset GOP efforts to maintain their presence in California and hopefully send Mr. Rohrbacher packing. Uh, If you watch our social media on Facebook, you'll probably remember the video we posted from team member Josh uh, with Dana Rohrbacher arguing against giving shelter to people in the OC. So he is really someone that we're hoping to see get sent home once and for all in November. Over in District 50, progressive Amar Kampanahar secured the number two spot and will be running against Duncan Hunter in November. Hunter is another pro-Trump Republican who is facing stiff opposition in the fall. It will be telling to see how much money either party dumps into this race, but this may become an incredibly expensive seat. 
Now, as we round this out, I want to touch on a couple of assembly district races. Here at Ground Game LA, we spent a bunch of time knocking doors and making phone calls for various campaigns, but the assembly races were really the most familiar, like the one where we got to know people in districts and got to know people on the ground the most because they're such local races. Uh, these were the races that really brought politics to everyone's doorstep, as it were. But these races were also a lesson in how to learn from losses, because none of the people that we backed did super, super well, but there were some good wins to be eked out in there. So to, to sum it up real quick, uh, in Assembly District 45, which is up in the valley, Ankur Patel, who currently works for LAUSD board member Scott Schmerlson, was unable to break into the top two. Uh, Democrat Jesse Gabriel, who's a former Obama administration official and uh, a lawyer, and was the favorite with uh, a lot of Democratic Party money and, and energy backing him, he will continue on to face Republican Justin Clark, who was an 18-year-old college student who came out of nowhere uh, and pretty much won the nomination as a Republican because he was the only nomination in the right... The, he was the only Republican in the race. Uh, Dennis Zine was running for a bit, but pulled out before the special election, which confused a whole bunch of people and messed up a whole bunch of ballots. Uh, but basically, we're going to have a fairly experienced uh, Democrat running against a very inexperienced Republican child. And so this one could be a bit of a bloody race. And hopefully Jesse Gabriel doesn't mess this one up too much, because if he lost to an 18-year-old freshman, that would be pretty devastating uh and also a sign of real democratic party weakness in that district over in uh district 54 sydney kamlinger who won the special election last mm, april took the number one spot with 54 percent of the vote a significant decrease from her margin that she won the special election by. Democrat Tepring Picado will face off with her in november activist steve dunwoody our our favorite for the race came in fourth now, Anthony Rendon has been facing stiff opposition over his decision to table SB 562, uh, a plan to bring universal health care to California. He still came out on top, but will be facing off against progressive Democrat Maria Estrada. Uh, this Northern California race will be in the spotlight because of Rendon's leadership and controversial political stances. It is one of the few Democrat versus Democrat race in the state this November and will provide some clues to how far left the electorate wants to move. Now moving on to the L.A. County Sheriff, Jim McDonnell won the primary but was short of the majority he needed to close out the race. Retired Sheriff's Lieutenant Alex Villanueva secured 33% of the vote to win the number two spot. McDonnell raised $585,000 but was outraised by but was outraised by Bob Lindsay, who pulled in more than $700,000. Meanwhile, Villanueva only raised $27,000. The race to lead the nation's largest sheriff's department is shaping into a competition over cooperation with federal immigration authorities. Villanueva has pledged to stop cooperating with ICE if he is elected, a stance that seems to have attracted a significant amount of support. We'll have to see how much money he attracts as his challenge picks up steam. Now, two L.A. County Board of Supervisors seats were up this time around. Hilda Solis ran unopposed in District 1 and took home 100% of the vote crazy. Uh, no word on any strong writing candidates at this point. Uh, and uh, she'll continue to represent the, the first district for the next five years. Uh, Sheila Cool uh, was running in District 3, and she took home 74% of the vote. Uh, so a pretty strong showing, and it looks like she's going to remain the incumbent as well. Let's uh, just mention that Judge Aaron Pesky did not survive his recall election. Pesky rose to national attention last year when his very lenient sentence of Stanford rapist Brock Turner caused a little bit of outrage. 60% of the voters decided not to send him back to his job on the bench. 
All right, so we're going to jump into judicial races, and we've got uh, Ace here to talk about those. Hey, how you doing? Uh, yeah, being a public defender, the, the courts are near and dear to his heart and professional life. So uh, where do you want to start? Los Angeles, San Francisco? Where are we going, Ace? Well, one thing we should talk about is the DA races in mm. uh, state in the various municipalities. Uh, countywide, there were a couple liberal challenges to prosecutors or more hardline DAs uh, up and down the state. San Diego, Genevieve Jones-Wright was running. Uh, there was one in Alameda. I th- think Contra Costa still being might still be being counted right yeah, now. Yeah, I believe so. That one was was pretty close. Um, it's a smaller county. Yeah. So all of these uh, challenger DAs running had pretty substantial support from the Real Justice Pack. Uh, you know, Sean King, uh, that sort of national movement. And, and he was in town uh, last Saturday to talk about this with Bernie Sanders and Jasmine Kanek and, and Melina Abdullah. So this is all pretty fresh in like the electorate's mind. Yeah, I, I, in, in in a certain sense. I mean, he was he was here in L.A., but there wasn't a D.A. race in L.A. Uh, I think one thing that's really key in understanding it is that the th- this is uh, it's not enough to simply have a good message uh, when you're dealing with district attorney, because uh, the sort of logic of criminalization and public safety, quote unquote, and law and order is still very high in people's minds. Uh, to get somebody like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, like a genuinely transformative figure or somebody interested in making real change in the criminal justice system, it's not enough to just have a good message and you know funding. You really need something else that Krasner had, which was a lot of people in the streets knocking on doors. A, a, a ground game, if you will. Yeah, I, I, you know, yeah, sure. One of those. Um, one of the, in, so like while there were a lot of volunteers involved in these campaigns, like they didn't have anything, a ground operation on the scale of Larry Krasner, as far as I can see. Uh, there were a lot of calls made, a lot of text sent, a lot of uh, social media presence, but the thing that really shifts people in this is those personal conversations because people aren't primed to react to this topic the same way they are uh, primed to understand and react to some of the other more major label uh, political differences or something like a D and an R next to somebody's name. Well, and and I noticed from my phone banking uh, for uh, Jones right down in San Diego that people weren't really invested in A, the DA race, or really understood or cared that they were really voting for the DA, like it didn't seem to be something that popped up on their radar, even though it's a super huge, important office in their life. I, I think the just the nature of a phone conversation also makes it hard to get that across. It's very, A phone conversation is very good if you're trying to build name recognition or get the message across that, oh, you the election is actually happening. There is actually one of those coming up and maybe you should consider voting in it. Um, but you're less likely to be, as all my experience is phone banking for all sorts of candidates, you're much less likely to be allowed to have a really long, yeah. in-depth conversation. Uh, whereas when I've knocked on people's doors, you know, sometimes somebody's been uh, talking about issues and f- wondering what my thoughts are on things for, you know, 20 minutes or 25 minutes, 30 minutes, or it's somebody that I see regularly or can come back the next day and uh, make that sort of uh, repeated effort. And I think that stuff is vital in understanding something like a DA's race where the issues are about compassion and morality and go a lot deeper than just the 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 most obvious things of competence and party alignment. 
But with that in mind, uh, it doesn't sound like you're ready to throw out this model of reform-minded DAs and seeing this as kind of a national uh, movement and something that needs a national push behind it. I, I think it absolutely is something that needs a national push. I think it's something that it's good that people are turning their attention to it. Uh, I think it just shows that what needs to be done goes beyond the be, goes beyond preaching to the choir, goes beyond standard uh, large-scale electoral work, and it's really going to be about getting on people's in, on people's front porches. So we've got a few more years of uh, fairly run-of-the-mill district attorneys coming here in California, but some, some insurgents that made some promising inroads. Uh, let's transition now to the judicial races, um, and there were some exciting results in that one uh, from San Francisco as well as L.A., um, and also some results that were more in line with uh, expectations from years past. Well, in San Francisco, the, uh, the sitting judges seemed to hold off the public defenders who were challenging them. There was a slate of four public defenders challenging them. Uh, and I'm surprised they were able to hold them off as well as they did, given some of the uh, mo- movement towards more progressive uh, ends of the spectrum in other things in San Francisco, uh, like, for example, the uh, Measure H, which you talked about earlier, was decisively defeated. Yeah. Um, so it's surprising that there wasn't a much of a a spillover effect. I, I think people might not have been aware of it as much, or perhaps um, I think I, I think something that I'm coming to conclusion in general is that it is somewhat easier to uh, push people on more radical ballot measures or you know holding the line against negative ballot measures than it is to sort of process. Uh, individuals sometimes. Well, and, and also just the way that like judicial nominations of those races are run is so opaque to the public because they spend the first like two thirds of the race going around to bar associations and professional lawyer associations and getting the, the okay or the endorsement or the like, hey, we think you're qualified from them, which the general public doesn't see. Like the general public only sees this race in the last couple of weeks running up to it if somebody's spending money. Well, in, in this, the San Francisco is a little bit different of a case because the uh, public defender slate was so uh, media aware and unified in purpose. So they were promoting themselves uh, more aggressively from the jump. Uh, the you know they did have people out knocking doors. They did have people canvassing. They they were taking those steps, um, but judicial races are pretty opaque to people, and people don't necessarily understand even what the hell is going on in a courtroom. I mean, yeah, you know, from I can say from personal experience, most people have no idea what the hell is going on in a courtroom. Well, and it also gets uh, the the things get mixed up a little bit more when you're if you're an appointed judge, you're there for like 12 years before you have to face an election. Like you get to earn a lot of institutional credibility and to get to have like a full career before you face a challenge. So there's even more, I think, in the incumbent's favor in those races than like in other races up and down the ballot. There's always a huge amount in favor of the incumbent in a judicial race, not only because of those sort of factors, but because judicial races are part of the judicial system, which prides itself on being impartial and disinterested, even if it's obviously not, and liberal faith in the judiciary as an institution is largely misplaced. The fact of the matter is that these uh, these judges have a strong uh, institutional loyalty. And so when they were uh, challenged in this case, the judges universally closed ranks, not only the judges being challenged, but also all the other judges in the county as well. Wow. Um, and, and, and that is that does tend to be the uh, 
manner of it. They saw a threat to the to them their own offices, mm-hmm. right? Um, and they uh, align psychologically and politically with people who are share their you know broad. It's almost like class interests, kind of. They're it's as if they're part of the same union or a part of the same uh, you know social class. So that's a, always a factor, and challenging judicial officers becomes is always a very difficult uh, battle. So that that's a little disheartening coming out of San Francisco. But here in L.A., we saw a different story. We we saw some insurgent candidates, but they weren't running on the same organized slate. Uh, and we saw some like close to upsets, and a couple of like what would have been sure things are going to runoffs in the the next uh, in in November. Yeah, there are there are a number of people who uh, made the cut as judge who I was pleased with and I think were in line with the with the endorsements that you'd given out Tim yeah um, uh, Lucy Armendariz uh, is going through clean uh, Holly Hancock's going to a runoff that's a very interesting one of course Holly Hancock is a public defender and actually somebody I know uh, personally she was my court partner at one point and uh, she was in a three-way race with Tony Cho a DA who's very well connected, very well funded, and frankly, like actually very well liked. I haven't, I've heard uh, he's uh, he's a popular fellow. Mm-hmm. Um, also in the race, Ben Colella, another guy I know personally. If I work at the same courthouse, I assume yeah. lovely guy. Um, but uh, Holly was the real insurgent in terms of in terms of you know m- the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony Cho had it was coming into the, this race with not only a large Rolodex of Democratic uh, supporters, but also hundreds of thousands of dollars. He, he, I saw him and uh, Escalante were the only two on my Facebook feed trying to get me to vote for them as far as judges go until the last week when Lucia uh, Armendariz started popping up. But Tony Cho and Maria, uh, Marianne Escalante, they've been popping up for a couple of weeks. They were spending big money. Well, Tony, had, uh, Tony Cho already had some institutional relationships because I, I think his family is involved in Democratic Party politics. I think he's tried to run previously. But he was able to come into this with a with a war chest of several hundred thousand dollars, which is a remarkable amount for one of these races. Conversely, I, I don't believe uh, Holly ever <laughs> got a website. Yeah. So uh, for her to uh, keep him under 50 percent and head to a runoff, you know, I believe that his final total was something around 43 years. Uh, like, he, he was like 43. She was like 33, like which for for someone who really didn't. Uh, run a, a very public campaign, pulling thirty percent of the vote was pretty, actually she's at thirty seven. Thirty seven, yeah. So yeah, she so. did, you know, fairly well for a down ballot race without that much, uh, um, you know, visibility brought to it. Uh, and that I'm kind of hoping is is strength to or speaks to the strength of word of mouth canvas, canvassing and campaigning. I I do agree that that's uh, it, it does show that, and I think it kind of shows potentially uh, the the strength of. Uh, I I think it shows in part that like being a public defender is not something that people are uh, frightened of anymore. That the the national mood has shifted somewhat. Normally, a well respected DA or two respected DAs running against a public defender. You know, according to conventional wisdom, would have been a shutout, yeah. but it's different now, and I think that does bode well. So I wish her luck in the in the runoff in November, um, and we'll see what sort of institu- what sort of national attention comes towards that race yeah. when you have something like that now, right? Um, 
some other some other ones I saw uh, Gibbons uh, beat Berger by just a few percent in uh, for seat 71 uh, both of them I've heard very good things about so uh, I, th- I think there was no uh, no harm there though I know Berger is a is a DA who's very well respected by uh, some of the more radical public defenders that I know so uh, it's. I think that was a second shot at running for judge, and it's too bad he wasn't able to uh, clinch it. But it's not like he lost to someone <laughs> terrifying or frightening. Um, another interesting one was in uh, one thirteen. That's going to a runoff between Javier Perez and Michael Ribbons. Uh, the third person in that race was Stephen Schreiner, who uh, thankfully didn't make the cut. Uh, it was recently discovered through perusal of his Facebook page. He's a massive Trump supporter and was sharing some remarkably racist memes on his personal Facebook page, which maybe the uh, district attorney might want to encourage him to set to private. Um, things things relating to, you know, how like the, <laughs> getting that sort of slavery wasn't that bad sort of realm. Very distressing stuff. So it's good to see that he uh, was shut out of the runoff in that one. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a little bit scary. That some some of these down ballot things, you know, you don't necessarily know everything about the people who. I mean, we all remember the the uh, uh, District One excitement in oh, twenty seventeen. Yeah, yeah. uh, some of the things you don't know everything about the people who are running until they get a little further into it because they're not they're not subject to as close scrutiny. Well, the, there's the the uh, kid who's running for assembly district in 45, who's literally 18 years old and pretty much, you know, sailed through because he was the Republican on the ballot. And I think a lot of people are going to have a very uh, harsh wake up call to realize that simply voting for a party preference doesn't guarantee you a candidate uh, you're going to like. That, that is that 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 remains true uh, across the board. Shout out to everyone who voted for Diane Feinstein. <laughs> With with those races out of the way, or the, that coverage of the races out of the way, what do you want to put in people's minds going into November? Like for those of us that are interested in judicial and justice reform, what are our options going to look like when we step into that booth? I mean, I think one thing is that the remaining runoffs are going to have a chance to, uh, in in the judicial arena, have more of a conversation about the issues and raise the profile of it a bit because there aren't as many races anymore. There aren't as many people uh, in the running and they'll have a chance to establish themselves further. Uh, mm-hmm. just signing up to run for judge doesn't necessarily tell people much, but once you're in a runoff, there's kind of a different context. You've proved yourself at least somewhat. Uh, so there's going to be a chance for them to have more of a discussion of what's going on. And there'll be more of a chance for, uh, those of us who are interested to get in touch with them and find out. Yeah. Uh, that, that's certainly that's my take on it. So now that the election's over and we've had a little bit of time to think, pretty happy with the results, pretty eh, pretty angry about the results. What are you thinking? Uh, I'd say eh. I mean, it's hard for me to be um, super angry. Like we we didn't have as many progressive wins as I would have hoped. Um, Allison Hart's that we already mentioned. Um, you know, like Jess Phoenix in uh, what is it twenty five? Yeah, I um, mean, but her losing to Katie Hill, like it, it, that was a hard one. I like them both <laughs> exactly, and that's sort of like yeah, you know what? Like uh, it would have been gr- better to have a more progressive candidate, but there is a progressive candidate. Like you know, she won the primary, so theoretically, like she has enough capital to move on to the general and possibly unseat. 
um, Steve, Steve Knight. Yeah, Steve um, Knight. So, you know, uh, that's good. Um, Genevieve Jones-Wright lost. That's too bad. Uh, but I would say overall, like, pretty meh. I mean. Yeah, I got to say the Genevieve Jones-Wright one, that one was way more of a shellacking than I was thinking. It was the polling data was off by a bit. There was a lot of uh, money. Uh, I, I read the right-wing blogs every day to keep myself entertained, sure. and <laughs> they were going after Soros for pouring money into left-leaning DA races, which, A, thank you, George, that's where we need you spending your money, but, B, it also kind of shows the limits of spending in that one, because, like, you and I did some phone banking for Genevieve Jones, right? And that was one of the down-ballot races people actually seemed a little bit, like, knowledgeable about. Um, and she also had a really compelling, interesting story. Uh, and I was really, yeah, it felt like the progressives got kind of like blunted. Uh, what do you want to do going into November? Like, what are you thinking as far as uh, different strategies or more momentum or what what do you want to see happen? Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. Also, you know, it's sort of like I, I think that me personally and, and you know, not not the progressive left at large, but we need to stop thinking about elections as the end-all be-all like that's sort of like the party is the election um the the hard work happens in between the elections when we try to move people on the ground knock on doors um you know there's there's a chance that i go out and i I knock on some doors for some of the candidates um you know i really wish that doug applegate would have won um but that was also kind of a letdown he also Um, was another one who had far less wind in his sails than people thought i was really surprised looking at the the polling data and like the momentum people thought he had that was a very bad showing for him yeah and i mean especially considering that he lost uh the last election to daryl isa by like 1600 votes or something like something minuscule and then you know i i don't don't know exactly what happened in there but i know the the d-trip didn't uh it didn't come in for him but i mean you know i i think still spreading the word um you know the message hasn't changed um the goals are still what the goals are and i i think you know there's there's got to be an understanding that you don't get your ideal situation in every election but that doesn't mean that um you give up doesn't mean that you you turn turn tail and go fight for the other side. I think, you know, there's still a, an argument to be made that, you know, you can still go out and canvas for a Katie Hill or um, whoever the person was that won in Doug Applegate's district. Yeah, it, um, well, it's, it's something I like to remind myself is even though the media has, like, the forever campaign going on and as soon as an election is over, they're already talking about the next one, like, the vast majority of work is happening between elections and absent of elections. Um, and unless you're like Garcetti, who's, you know, clearly spending his term as mayor trying to set himself up for a bigger office, there's actual real work for these guys to be doing and these these women to be doing while they're on the job. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think, you know, um, part of it is calling the offices of your elected officials, you know, letting them know, hey, I voted for you or hey, I didn't vote for you. These are the reasons why. These are the things that I would like to see. Um, but then also just yeah, I, I think... If anything, like being involved in politics these past couple of years has really shown me is that um, the actual political capital is on the ground and turning out uh, the electorate, getting people to vote, hopefully, hopefully the way that you want them to vote. But really just I mean, we you know, we had another pretty poor showing in California. Yeah, (laughs) especially Southern California. Some of those rural districts, like they turn those voters out. And that was a little bit scary to see. You know, I I don't feel as safe as some people do with the the Cox Newsom matchup because Cox is going to have a lot of money behind him. And there's seven Republican congressional districts. They're going to have a lot of money behind him because they're vulnerable. That's all going to bleed out. It's not like they're only going to spend money on this Republican. They're going to throw it at all the Republican. Yeah. um, And one um, one hot take, I guess, uh, was um, somebody said that um, 
you know, they were hoping that there was going to be a Republican at the top of the ticket so that they could spread the money out that Republicans are going to spend and they won't be able to spend as much on congressional races and they won't be able to spend as much on um, the local sort of um, municipal elections. But I think that if there wasn't a Republican at the top of the ticket, it may have stifled Republican vote a little bit and people wouldn't have turned out. And now those people have a reason to turn out. And also, I mean, you know, it's always good to try to prop up your Republican um, opponents because that's never that's never bitten anybody in the ass, right? No, not not recently. Nothing right. I can think of. Yeah, yeah. no, it's recent memory. Yeah, no, that never happened. Yeah, no, and it, I think that is a good point because uh, the local races or the state sort of local races, like governor, like that will turn people out to the polls. It is really easy to motivate people to go vote for someone that they could potentially meet or potentially work for, or potentially affects their lives. Whereas, like. I don't really get motivated to go out there and knock on doors for senators, really turn out the vote for a senator. It's usually up, you know, the top of the ticket brings me out and then the bottom of the ticket keeps me voting. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's the political calculus that people are making on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. Even the libertarian side of the aisle. (laughs) Sweet. All right. Well, thank you, Rich. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Well, a huge thank you to Ace, Chris, and Rich for coming in and joining me and talking about the election, giving you some idea on what we think about various races and uh, various subjects that came up. Uh, Again, this was a sort of meh primary in my book. Uh, We saw couple of wins none of the big wins we're really hoping for but we didn't really see like total disaster on either side so it's going to be really interesting going into november uh the forever campaign continues on here in america and we will be here bringing you the blow by blow the highlights the lowlights uh the shadows the mids the sorry i'm making color corrector jokes now but anyways uh we're going to be here till november and then past november uh also we'll be bringing you lots of interesting opportunities to go knock on doors to go talk to your to to go knock on doors, to talk to other constituents, to yell at people in power. Because, like, when it comes right down to it, elections are one day. Campaigns are a few months. What really matters is showing up and yelling at politicians week after week after week after week after week. Never stop speaking truth to power. Never stop fighting. Thank you guys very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>